0: You're all probably expecting me to talk about the Defense of Marriage Act and the Prop 8 decisions handed down by the Supreme Court last week or a week and a half ago on last week's show. But because I've been on a book tour and because Nancy Hartunian, producer of the Savage Love Cast, was on vacation, we banked a couple of shows in advance. So we, we had to record a few shows in advance and we weren't up to date. So I wasn't able to rant in real time about how important and earth-shattering and groundbreaking and life-changing – that decision was um, handed down by the Supreme Court. I had almost willed myself not to think about it. I had willed myself not to think about it too much uh, because so much was at stake for lesbian, gay, bi couples all over this country. What basically went down for anybody out there who hasn't been paying attention for the last 20 years was in 1996, around about the time that gay marriage advocates began to see some success in states, in Hawaii, and Massachusetts. Uh, Vermont, some court decisions, some Supreme Court decisions in the states uh, affirming that same-sex couples are entitled to equality under the law and should be entitled to marry just as opposite-sex couples are entitled to marry and should be afforded the same rights and responsibilities and protections of marriage. At that time, when we began to see some progress on marriage rights for same-sex couples, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 signed by then-President Bill Clinton that really did something unprecedented that the federal government had never done before, instituted a kind of federal definition of marriage. And the Defense of Marriage Act did a couple of things. It told states that they didn't have to recognize marriages performed in other states for same-sex couples, even if they were legal, which has never been the case. Uh, In some states, it's illegal for first cousins to marry. In other states, it is legal for first cousins to marry. If first cousins marry in a first cousin marriage equality state and they move to a first cousin marriage discrimination state, their marriage is still legally valid. That One state will recognize the, the marriages of another state. It's a full faith and credit clause of the Constitution requires that, that states recognize and honor each other's contracts, compacts, marriages so that there isn't chaos. Uh, but DOMA said that states could – have a carve out on that. It also did something else that was really unprecedented. It said that the federal government would not recognize legal marriages performed in the states if the couple that married was a same-sex couple. The federal government had never done that before ever. The federal government had left marriage to the states. If the states allowed first cousins to marry, the federal government recognized that marriage. If they didn't allow it, the federal government didn't interfere. This was an unprecedented and unconstitutional carve out. People believe for a very long time that if it ever got to the Supreme Court, that they would have to recognize that this was indeed unconstitutional, the Defense of Marriage Act, the Section 3, where the federal government refused to recognize them. That is what got scrapped. The Defense of Marriage Act in its entirety is not scrapped. Section 2, which allows states to discriminate, to refuse to recognize marriages performed in other states for same-sex couples, that's still in force. There will be more lawsuits. The fight continues. But what it means now, this DOMA decision, what it means now – is that in the 13 states where same-sex couples can legally marry, including now California because of the Prop 8 decision that came down the same day as the Supreme Court decision on DOMA, that those marriages performed in those states will be recognized by the federal government. And props, mad props, as the kids were saying 20 years ago, to the Obama administration, which has stated now that your federal rights will move with you, that if you marry in California and you live in Nevada, your federal rights will still be in force. That was up in the air. So tremendous progress and I was blown away. Where was I? And Personally, how did I react? A lot of people have been calling and asking me for my personal reaction. I was in my kitchen at my computer refreshing my Twitter feed. Maniacally on that Wednesday morning, waiting for the decision to come through. The last day. What a bunch of fucking theater fags run the Supreme Court. They kept pushing the one decision. The whole country was on edge, waiting for. kept pushing it back, pushing it back till the very last day. And so we're there, seven in the morning in Seattle. Refresh, refresh, refresh. Terry's upstairs in bed asleep. Our, our son is downstairs in his room asleep. The decision comes through and DOMA is scrapped. Section three of DOMA declared unconstitutional and Terry and I suddenly went just in a year from being married only in Canada, boyfriends in America, to being married in Canada and married in Washington state where we won marriage equality at the ballot box last year to suddenly as of 10 a.m. last Wednesday morning, married in the eyes of the federal government because section three is dead. We are legally married at every level and – When people talk about marriage rights uh, and a lot of the sort of first flush sort of conflicts and screaming and yelling have been about florists and bakers. I could give a flying fuck about florists and bakers. But we keep sort of talking about banquet halls and wedding ceremonies and who's going to make the goddamn cake. And there have been bakeries that have discriminated against same-sex couples and literally anti-marriage – activists, bigoted anti-gay marriage activists, they were worried in the wake of the decision about florists being coerced into selling their fucking flowers to same-sex couples, which is a whole fucking other issue and it's a misnomer and it's bullshit. It's a smokescreen. It's a distraction. Florists are required to sell their fucking flowers to same-sex couples, not because marriage is legal but because in many states – particularly states that also have marriage equality. It is illegal to discriminate against someone in the provision of goods and services based on their sexual orientation. It was illegal in Washington state to refuse to sell fucking flowers to a couple of faggots before marriage was legalized. And it is just as illegal now that marriage is legalized. So whatever. They're worried about florists being coerced. And a lot of gay people are talking about florists and bakeries. But the truth is, as John Corvino points out in his book, Debating Same-Sex Marriage, which he wrote with Maggie Gallagher, is that the the really important incidents of marriage, the really important rites, they kick in at the worst times of your life, not the wedding party, not the cake and flowers moment. The really important incidents of marriage tend to kick in in hospital wards, uh, in funeral homes, uh, after the death of a spouse. And so being the morbid motherfucker that I am, uh, what the scrapping of Doma meant for me personally, the change it's going to make – for me, for for Terry, for for our family, how he, in the nitty-gritty, in the detail, this is what came up for me on Wednesday at 10 a.m. For 15 years, ever since Terry and I became parents, ever since uh, Terry then decided about a year later or we decided together that he would be the stay-at-home parent, for 15 years, every time I got on an airplane, every time I spoke before a crowd, every time I rode my bike through Seattle, which is a dangerous place to ride a bike – I would think about the plane crashing. I would think about one of the many motherfuckers who are constantly sending me death threats showing up at an event where I was giving a talk and blowing my brains out. I would think about being hit by a bus and killed on my bike. And you know, I'm from a morbid family. We have this problem. We call it worst case scenario disorder where whatever is happening in your life, you have to sort of game out and think about and obsess about how terribly wrong everything could go and this kind of inoculates you somehow against those potential negative consequences. If you just obsess about it, it won't happen. It's a crazy way to live. But for 15 years, ever since Terry became a stay-at-home parent, I not only had to think about planes crashing. I also had to think about what would happen to Terry and my son, to our son, DJ, after I died because Terry isn't a woman because we are a same-sex couple because I'm not a woman. He's not a man. He's not a woman. I'm not a man. He wasn't entitled to collect my social security survivor benefits should I die. Uh, He would face a crushing tax bill if I died. If he was my wife, he would inherit my property without having to pay taxes. But because he's my husband, he can't. It wasn't just that I would die and Terry would lose his husband and DJ would lose one of his parents, but they would also be impoverished and punished. They would lose the house. They would lose their financial security because I was dead and because we were not married in the eyes of the federal government. And We were told that this was not something the federal government could do. Couldn't recognize our marriage because somehow that would weaken straight marriages. Heterosexual families are only strong because gay families are weak. Only by punishing us, impoverishing us, impoverishing Terry and DJ, can Rick Santorum's family thrive. I don't know how that works. I don't know what the alchemy there is that persecuting a widow, a gay widow or widower – Persecuting that person somehow strengthens straight marriage. Like straight marriages are vampires that have to suck the blood of pain out of same-sex couples at the worst moments of their lives to for their own vitality and strength. It's bullshit and it's insulting. It's insulting to straight people but it's really insulting to gay people. And So what happened to me personally on that Wednesday morning when that decision came down was I felt this weight – suddenly be lifted from my shoulders that I had been carrying around for so long that I'd almost forgotten what it was like to walk around without that weight on me. Then I went upstairs and I crawled into bed with Terry and I told him what had happened. And at that moment, as morbid as it sounds, I thought, oh, I can die now. That if the plane crashes, the, as the plane crashes, I won't be thinking, fuck, not only am I going to die, but Terry and DJ are now really going to be punished. Terry's going to be punished for having married me. DJ will be punished for the crime of having gay parents, unfairly punished, viciously punished. I don't have to worry about that anymore. That has been lifted from me. I don't want anything bad to happen. Please don't kill me if you're one of the many people out there who sends me death threats. Please don't kill me. That's what I'm saying. But now, now I can die and just be sad about the fact that the plane I'm on is crashing and not also be sad about what is going to be done. To my husband and child in the wake of my death. And for that I am so grateful. To Evan Wolfson, who's going to be a guest later on the program today. Who is the godfather of the marriage equality movement. To Edie Windsor, who is the kick-ass lesbian widow who brought the suit that toppled DOMA. She was hit with a $360,000 tax bill upon the death of her spouse, Thea. That she didn't, would not have had to pay. Little old lady... Robbed of all that money she wouldn't have to pay, money that she could have lived on in her old age, taken from her because she loved the wrong person in the eyes of the federal government. And Edie Windsor, thank you. Thank you for kicking the federal government's ass. Thank you for tearing down DOMA because in that moment, you made my family more secure. So it was a good day last Wednesday, a good day that came after a bad day, the day before the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. We need to get in the fight on that. North Carolina, Texas. Ohio, we've seen draconian, vicious, brutal, misogynistic, anti-choice legislation fly through those state legislatures signed by their governors, Kasich and Ohio. Appalling. We're going to talk about it later in the show. Appalling. We have to stay in the fight. There are other fights and the marriage fight isn't over yet. Marriage equality has been won for same-sex couples lucky enough to live in the 13 states where same-sex couples can marry there are 37 states right now where same-sex couples cannot. The fight ain't over for marriage equality and the fight ain't over for reproductive freedom and the fight ain't over. How is this even possible? How can I be saying this in 2013? The fight isn't over to protect the voting rights of African-Americans and other minority groups. Ah, oh, fucking Pauling. The same Supreme Court, ah, oh, fucking Pauling. We are going to fight for all those things. but. We can take a moment to celebrate the victory that last Wednesday represented for justice for same-sex couples. Hard won, long fought victory. I was elated. I hope all of you were elated. And I hope all of you are committed to staying in the fight on all fronts. And now your calls.
1: Hi, Dan. I just had a first date with a guy. It went well. We ended up in the back of his car and we had sex and we used a condom, but he was kind of so large that when I pulled myself up off of him, he came out of the condom um, and he had already come. So there was that. And I know that I should be tested, but I was just wondering how much should I be freaking out? Like how, it wasn't like the condom broke, it stayed intact and I actually pulled it out of me completely whole, but I know that he had come and it was there. (laughs) And I was just wondering what are the odds that, that was bad for me and that I will have contracted some horrible thing. I mean, we talked about testing and everything, and he claims to be clean and hadn't been with anybody since he's been tested. I just don't believe people, and I think I should still be tested. I just want to know if, like, what level of immediacy this deserves.
0: You don't mention whether you're on the pill or some sort of oral contraceptive or you have an IUD or if... This condom that slipped off his dick, which happens, happens a lot, was your only means of birth control. If it was your only means of birth control, you should be a little less worried about contracting some sexually transmitted infection. The horrible thing that you might have contracted is an unplanned pregnancy. The original sexually transmitted infection, children. That's what you should be freaked out about. Your first move after the condom slipped off should have been to get your ass out to a pharmacist or a pharmacy where you can buy over-the-counter now. Thank you, Judge. Uh, Over the objections of the Obama administration, you can buy over-the-counter Plan B emergency contraception. That was your first panic. That should have been your first move. And yeah, test. Test, test, test. It's always good to test. You might as well test. There are sexually transmitted infections that condoms offer some protection from but not entire protection from. And yeah, there are semen and blood-borne sexually transmitted infections that, of course, a leakage would put you at greater risk of. So you should absolutely go test. But your first panic attack – Should have been that unplanned pregnancy. When we talk about condoms being a very effective means of birth control and disease prevention, uh, we sort of oscillate between acknowledging imperfect usage of condoms or typical use it's called and perfect use. And in perfect use, condoms are hysterically wildly effective uh, birth control means and also a a, a tremendously effective uh, barrier against many sexually transmitted infections and of course reduces your risk for others. Uh, but the difference between perfect use and typical use, perfect use, and you know in a perfect universe, after somebody ejaculates uh, in a condom, they grip the condom by the base as they withdraw they just don 't yank their dick out of what is now a i don 't know two or three hundred percent more moist interior of a condom because your vaginal walls or somebody 's ass can grip the condom, and the dick can slide right out, and then, as the, the vag or ass closes on the condom, it squeezes its contents out, which can spill into the anus or into the vagina and you can get pregnant or infected. So or infectedly pregnant. So perfect use, hold the condom while you withdraw. You know that now he knows that now. So your future condom use should be less typical and more perfect in future. When some guy's fucking with a condom, you're going to remind him if he comes inside you to hold the base of the condom as he withdraws, or you will hold the base of the condom as he withdraws. Hopefully he in future will remember to do that too so that he and his future sex partners can avoid this panic, this, this panicked phone call to the uh, sex podcast guy will be unnecessary because you won't make this mistake again.
2: Hi, uh, uh, this is not so much a sex question as a sex consequence question. Um, a while back I, I had uh, sex with a woman who was married. Uh, she, We'd had sex maybe twice before over the period of five years um, her husband much older, and um, she this time you know called me out of the blue and insisted that uh, when she came over that we wouldn't use a condom, and I'd always used one, and she said, I, I hate them, and I had a, an operation that precludes me getting pregnant, so please no, and I can't, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, bingo. And she denied the baby was mine uh, until the child was 22 months old, I am not in the child's life. The husband is still in place. My question is this. What right does the child have eventually, perhaps as an adult, to know their parentage versus the right of the mother to keep it a secret and avoid betraying the fact that she had an affair and she'd been lying to her daughter for all these years? And, you know, and, and trying to keep that family intact. I mean, does it, <clears throat> should it only happen upon the death of the titular father or should it never happen? I mean, what, what are the rights involved of everybody, including the child simply didn't know?
0: Never in your call do you mention your motives or why you want to tell this girl, why you want this girl to know so desperately that you are her biological father. You don't say that you are aching to be in relationship with this child, that you feel this sort of connection to this child. And so – but what comes across then is your desire to inform this child or for the truth to be out there isn't so much about your rights as a parent or biological parent and this child's right to know her genetic heritage but almost a perverse desire to out this kid's mother – to this kid and her husband as a lying cheat and you know maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe you weren't as articulate during the call as you could have been. But if what's motivating you here is a vindictiveness and some sort of desire for revenge upon your old lover uh, because of your anger at her duplicitousness and deceit, then leave it the fuck alone. Like your motives are bad and the person who will suffer most as you lash out at your former lover for her lying, cheating ways, is this innocent child who is caught in the crossfire here. She has a mother and a father. You had an orgasm. Your lover had a baby. And I realize that you have a genetic connection to this child and perhaps you feel some sort of ownership over this kid because of your DNA. But this kid has developed hopefully a sense of emotional security and, and contentment in this family unit and to blow in at age, what was it, 12? To blow in at age 12 during adolescence? That time in life when kids are already looking at their parents suspiciously and already starting to separate from them. You don't want to throw a can of gasoline under that fire that already burns in an adolescent's heart. Oh, my parents don't understand me. Oh, I'm not really part of this family. Bleh. By revealing this shit about her mother and about her and who she is and that she's, who she is is a lie has been a lie all her life. And how do you know? How do you know that you're the parent? Has there been a DNA test? Are you just looking at the calendar and guessing? Does this kid look like you and not at all like the father figure that she's – the person she's bonded with and identified with and been fathered by all her life? Doesn't look like that dude at all? Looks exactly like you? If This is just a hunch. Leave it the fuck alone. But if you got to do this, if this is something that you have to do, if this is about – Your desire to be known by your daughter as her father, as that guy who had that one crucial, all-important orgasm at that one crucial, all-important moment, kick the fucking can down the road. Remember, there is an innocent victim in this entire situation, which is that kid. And the truth may set you free. The truth may allow you to have a relationship with her. But the truth could destroy her. The truth – told now at age 12, at age 15, at age 17 could so upset her life and, and who she thought she was that it could send her off into a tailspin that could be potentially fatal. Kids are drama queens, right? So she's the innocent party here. And that has to be your first consideration. Not were you treated badly by your lover, not did she behave badly, not is. The, the person who – her dad, the person who's raised her all her life, who is her father emotionally, psychologically, her parent or other parent, you know to, to let him know that he's been fooled and to punish him perhaps for being an idiot. OK, so you've punished your ex-lover for being a liar. You've revealed to her husband that he's an idiot and a fool and has been cheated and you have destroyed potentially – Very likely this kid's life in the process, your kid's life in the process. Was that worth it? To think about the potential ways in which this will play out once it's out and the person who will suffer the most if this lands like a bomb is the innocent party in all of this, this girl. And maybe if you feel like you're her father, you should do the self-sacrificing thing. If you feel emotionally, psychologically, you should do what fathers are supposed to do and protect their children from harm. Which means for right now, for the time being, not letting her know that you are indeed her biological father. Because letting her know that now could inflict a great deal of harm on your little girl. Talk to your former lover, not in a I'm coming for you boogie boogie threatening way. Talk to your former lover and say, now is not the time, of course, adolescence and all that drama and girls in puberty and screaming and yelling and slamming doors, not the time for this, I realize. But when she's an adult, I feel she has a right to know and that should be respected if I am the, indeed the biological parent, that there is going to come a time where that is going to have to be on the table. And, and lay your marker down. and Put it in her head, your former lover's head, that that day of reckoning will come and that you believe that you're biological child has a right to know her biological father and to be known by him, but not now. And think long and hard about your motives because if even then, even when she's a young adult, your motives are still, if indeed they are and maybe I'm reading too much into your call and maybe you meant to say you you want to do this for all the right reasons, but if your motives are love and honesty and not about punishment and vindictiveness, maybe, maybe, but not now.
3: Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling with a question about an ex boyfriend recent of mine. So this guy, I was dating him for like six months and I find out recently that he is a sex addict and the whole time we're together, he has been sleeping with a lot of other people. And this is someone, I think I'm in a committed monogamous long-term relationship with him, but he is out sleeping with other people. He says it's an addiction. I think he is. I believe him. Like He has that personality of um, being of the addict, you know? Um, and so... Anyway, I he and I also know because I've been with him and I have been having unprotected sex with him that he um, will prefer not to use the condom and that probably there are some girls who's not going to use a condom. So obviously, I am taking care of myself. I'm going to get myself tested um, as soon as possible. But I also am wondering. Like I know he's meeting most of these girls through OkCupid. And how, you know, someone, I see this person as a health risk, like he is out, he could be spreading whatever to a lot of people. And if there is some like way, and maybe this is just like, cause I'm also mad at him, but, 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 you know, aside from that, is there any way to protect people against what I see as like a sexual predator? Because he could theoretically be spreading a lot of stuff around.
0: I don't want to jump down your throat right away but you say you were dating for six months and then you say you were in a long-term relationship. Uh, 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 sorry, wrong. A six-month relationship is not an LTR. Uh, I, the, you know, the, what makes an LTR how much time you have had to have been together to, to deem it an LTR is a little mushy and gray and amorphous but I definitely – I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that definitely at six months it is not yet an LTR. And I don't want to fault you. Like this guy sounds like a dog and a player, as they used to say in the 90s, and uh, a kind of a scumbag. But if he talked you out of condoms by six months, before six months were up, early in this relationship, you weren't really using your best judgment, which is not to excuse him at all. He's a dick and an asshole and a selfish motherfucking piece of shit. And he'll get his. Carmen will catch up with him. But, you know, what you take from this relationship going forward is not some sort of charge to protect all other women on the planet, all 3.5 billion women on the planet from his machinations and find some way to out him. There used to be a website called dontdatehimgirl.com where people would put up this kind of information and in photos but it was a little defamatory and nobody could prove if these things were true or not. So your charge going forward isn't vengeance and you, know, you don't get to be – Captain condom superhero swooping in to protect all the ladies, your charge going forward, I keep saying that, I'll say it one more time, is to draw the lessons here that, that, that you need to learn, which is I'm going to go get tested and then I'm not going to fall for this shit again. And I'm going to wait a lot longer than six months before I stop using condoms with someone new because you really can't know someone at six months. However nice and charming and sweet they feel, you really don't know them Yeah, they're really on their best behavior. Love is blind. New love is blind and stupid. And so you're not in any position between zero and six months to be smart or informed enough or clear thinking enough to toss the condoms away at someone's request. Condoms at that point in a relationship have to be kind of mandatory. You can want to not use the condoms. You can both acknowledge that sex is better without condoms. You have a preference for sex without condoms. And then you say, but we're going to wait. We're going to wait a year, a little longer. We're going to get tested. I'm going to get to know you better before I put my junk and my health in your hands that way. That's your mission going forward. And you have to trust that other women will see through him. There is really nothing that you can do. You have a right to your experiences. You have a right to talk about them with your friends. If you find out he's dating someone you know, you have a right to go run your mouth to that person about who you know him to be and how he treated you and how he lied to you and put you at risk so that your friend will benefit from your bad experience and your close call, hopefully. Hopefully, nothing terrible has happened here. Hopefully, you're fine. This was a close call and a wake up call. And what you have to wake up to is six months ain't an LTR and between zero and six months is too soon to throw the condoms away at the request of somebody you don't know that well.
1: Hi, Dan. My boyfriend and I are both exploring anal sex for the first time. Although we are disease-free and do not use condoms for vaginal sex, I would like to use condoms for anal, especially until we get the hang of it and in case there are any messes. My boyfriend's friends keep telling him to not use a condom with anal because it hurts them. Is this true? Because I feel like if it was true, I would have heard it on your podcast by now.
0: Yes. Using condoms for anal sex, it it really hurts. It's very painful if you buy those condoms that have tacks in them. Then it really fucking hurts. No, no, no. Condoms for anal do not fucking hurt. Sometimes they do hurt. But the person that a condom can hurt is the person getting fucked because some people are sensitive to latex and uh, condoms can have Tiny little, like, not cracks, like shit can't get through condoms, really, really effective. But latex, as it expands, can, you know, little, like, grooves can open up in it. And, you know, those expand and contract a little bit. They can irritate somebody's very sensitive rectal tissues. But they don't hurt the person fucking. They don't. That is a fucking lie from the pits of straight boy hell. It is bullony pony fucking shit. The reason you haven't heard that talked about on the podcast is because nobody was ever dumb enough to think that they could get that past me on the podcast. Now I'm not saying you're dumb. Nobody like these guys that your boyfriend uh, that is talking to. None of them ever thought that they could slip that one by me because they couldn't. Because that bullshit. And condoms are really great for anal. Even if you're in a you know, monogamous, fluid-bonded relationship with someone you really trust. Hopefully you've been with this guy more than six months. Um, and you're not using them for vaginal, yeah, the sense of security, particularly if you're worried about mess that condoms can give you, are great. You might want to think about female condoms if you really don't have to worry about him pulling out and there being a mess because a female condom is the ass can liner. You stuff it in you, he fucks it. Uh, he pulls out a bare dick and then you can go remove the female condom if you want to use it for anal. But if you're worried about mess and you want to use a regular condom, he fucks you. If he pulls out this mess, you open the bite base of the condom wide and you lifted off the dick, turning it inside out in the process, and then all the messes disappeared into the condom. It's actually a pretty beautiful thing, particularly for people who are worried about those messes and really who isn't worried about those messes when it comes to anal. And it will not hurt his dick unless you get those condoms that they fill with tax, which are just for us and and they don't actually even exist for them. Uh, he will not be hurt. His dick will survive. His dick will thrive. And – I, 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 I've talked about this before on the show, but I'm just going to keep talking about it because it just busts all these people who are like, oh, condoms hurt, condoms cut sensation, condoms this, condoms that. I can't feel anything with a condom on. And yet when, a con- when someone using a condom, wearing a condom, the condom breaks and they don't notice. I've been there. I have had condom break on me and I didn't notice. Because the sensation, the feeling is not so different. It's, it's unnoticeable, the difference. Literally unnoticeable. People are fucking away with a condom on the condom, breaks and disappears, is off their dick and they keep fucking without realizing because it's really no different. The condoms hurt. People would notice it when they stopped having that pain in their dick during anal and the condom broke. Suddenly it would go from being very painful, this butt fucking shit, to very delightful. It's bullshit. You're being lied to. Or he's being lied to by his friends. Insist on condoms if that's what you want. You know what? You put your foot down and say, "Okay, this anal thing you want to try, you can totally do it. We will do it tonight with a condom or we will not do it. You'll see how quickly he will agree to do it with a condom. If the choice is with and I get to or without and I don't, he's going to go with. And if he insists he just can't do it with a condom because it might hurt too bad because of what his friends have told him. His guy friends have told him about using condoms. Now, painful to just have anal sex with a condom. Then you tell him that if that's true, that, that he should go fuck his friends in the in their asses without a condom. And they can have lovely condom-free anal sex together, all of them. But he's not having condom-free anal with you. Hi,
1: Dan. i um, 29-year-old female in Canada. I had a question about disclosure of the amount of past sexual partners with your current partner. I'm in a serious relationship for the first time in my life and it's fantastic. And I have not disclosed the fact that I have slept with, I think, more people than he has based on his history of, you know, needing an emotional connection with women and having more serious relationships than I have. Um, from what he's told me, it sounds like he slept with maybe 10 to fifteen women, and I've slept with over 30 men. And I've had my choices and I made them happily, sometimes with regret, sometimes not. But the point is I haven't told him. And I don't know if I should or am obligated. He doesn't need to know in terms of STIs. I know that I was clean. He knows I know that he was clean when we started to um, to sleep together. Um, so it wouldn't be for that reason. But we have had conversations in the past where he's sort of belittled the idea of a quote unquote slutty behavior or casual relationships and he doesn't seem to understand that there is something in that in it for someone who does that. It's not just an empty, unhappy decision to do that. I've argued uh the point without disclosing my own history and I wonder what you thought about when it is necessary, um, when it's not, whether I owe it to him. Things are perfectly fine. I'm not dissatisfied with anything in the relationship. I just wondered if it's something worth telling him, not really to change his mind in the situation, but maybe it's to look twice um, at me.
0: Okay, so we caught you on the subway. Uh, we won't say in what city, <laughs> but some city that has a subway. So uh, but but it, it, so if there's noise, that's that's what it's about. I've never actually given advice to anyone on the subway before on the show. <laughs> how, you, you didn't say in this call how long you've been dating this guy.
1: Um, about nine months. Mi-
0: Okay. And do you guys never have, like, you know, what I've done, who've you've done, sexual numbers, conversation about your sexual histories with each other at any point in the dating process?
1: We never did the numbers thing. I mean, I got the sense early on that he didn't want to know any details. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. And same for me, so I just didn't press Just to sort of agree silently that it was not a really big deal, I guess.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Is this something that you think if it came out later or you know, he started asking questions down the road that could explode the relationship? You know, if going forward, is this going to be a sort of Damocles hanging over your head for the rest of your life? That if you're you – know, if you guys stay together, your future husband, maybe the father of your children, you're going to have to tiptoe around because, oh my god, if he ever finds this out, kabooey.
1: Right. Well, I think I called you because he we'd had conversations about other things that made me maybe think that maybe he had a more conservative idea mm-hmm. um, of dating than I have, and I know that he had he's been more of like a serial monogamist than mm-hmm. I have, definitely. Um, so I mean, but actually, since I called you, uh, we uh, had another conversation that didn't end so well um, about uh-huh. actually about the Pride Parade. <laughs> And it went, uh, you know, arguing about whether Pride Parade was promiscuous and promoting promiscuity. Uh And I would basically tell him to just, like, calm down and get over it. Uh
0: Um,
1: And then it started getting more and more detailed. And I kept pressing the point, like, why is sleeping around such a bad thing? And so then we got to our sort of point of difference where he doesn't think it's something you can get out of. You can't get the same amount out of, like, sleeping around, say, as you can by being serially
0: monogamous. (laughs) He needs to read a series of columns I wrote on people's sleazy meeting stories that so many decent and wonderful relationships can have begun with a sleazy meeting, with a one-night stand, with a hookup, with a three-way, and then a lot of really terrific relationships got their start that way. How did you two meet? How did you meet this guy? We met online. Uh Uh-huh, which people used to think was really terribly sleazy as a a way to meet. And did you date for a long time before you became sexually active or did you jump right in? Um, it was about a week and a half. Oh, yeah, that's so traditional. That's practically yeah, you know, I know. <laughs> the, the Bible lays it out just like that. It says in the yeah. Bible, meet online, wait a week, and then fuck. It's right exactly. there in Leviticus after no shellfish and uh, exactly. no polyester.
1: No, I don't want to. He's also surprised me in the sort of liberal side of, of our lives together. So I don't want to paint him as like this like stuck up Republican. Mm-hmm. I think it's just this one thing that he has. We've fought about him sort of um, you know, equating promiscuity with with a lot of my friends who happen to be gay kind of thing. Probably and he says it's because those are the stories I tell about them but the times I was out with my, you know, gay friend couple and they were trying to pick up the waiter all night and it was funny. And like, you know, so they hear me tell these stories about people like this and then um, and, and, and decide what, that that's w-
0: the way it is. What's really going on here, though, is he hears you tell stories about people like this. You hear him judge them negatively. And then you sit there knowing that if you told him stories about you that were similar yeah. and true and positive experiences in your life, he would judge you the same way. Yeah,
1: exactly. So
0: you, you've reached that point in a relationship with somebody who has, uh, I think, hang ups and unfair judgments of others where you need to out your you need to decide whether you're going to risk outing yourself to him or whether you can be with someone who is going to judge you all your life without realizing that they're judging you and hurting you or you're going to risk blowing his mind because if you come out to him as you know if you share your sexual history with him you don't have to come out to him as anything you just tell him the truth and say do you feel that I'm that way do you feel I'm like dirty or uh, you know nasty or promiscuous or this or that or the other do you think that's Do you think that of me now knowing what you know of me? No. Well, here's the rest of me. Do you still think that? Right. And he may reassess his attitudes once he finds out that someone that he loves and fell in love with is more sexually adventurous and open than he is. And that there's nothing about being sexually open or adventurous or having a few one-night stands or having 30 sex partners in 15 years or a dozen years, however long you've been sexually active, that Mm -hmm. makes somebody unlovable or scum.
1: Yeah, and, and I think I'm afraid of finding out whether or not he'll tip on that point, like, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Well, um, that's the risk that people so, sometimes have to take, you know.
1: Yeah. So by, by, like, coming out to him, do you mean, like, sharing the actual number or, like, sharing uh, the Eventually you're going to snap
0: at him. Eventually you're going to snap at him and you're going to blurt it out. Yeah. Because you're going to get drunk yeah. and he's going to say something shitty about people who do things that you have done and you're going to go, I do that. I've done that. Right. So you can either have it be the blurred out, ugly, drunken conversation confrontation about <laughs> it or you can roll it out in a more thoughtful and controlled way and say, so, you know what? A lot of the things you say really bother me and I feel really judged and I know you don't want to make me feel bad because you love me or you like me. Um, but yeah. here's the truth about my sexual experience. You don't have to give an exact number but you know, a relationship is not a deposition. Or an acquisition. You don't have to open your books entirely to somebody else. You can hold some things back. We each of us get to have a private interior life and some secrets we take to the grave. There's some incidents you don't want to share with them. You don't have to. But do you you want to be loved by somebody who will stop loving you if he finds out who you really are and who you have been and and what you have done? No, no. Of course not. That's exhausting. I guess I –
1: well, no. And and I think that's probably why I'm afraid to ask the question because – I guess the first question was whether or not it even matters, whether or not I should ever bring it up because it doesn't say anything about our relationship. So
0: A number's discrepancy just... doesn't matter. A number's discrepancy doesn't matter. And an right. untold truth doesn't matter if it doesn't matter. But here, the, the untold truth is something that you are being unfairly judged about, and that's going to eat away at you. It's already eating away at you or you wouldn't have called if you didn't care. Right. That he was not just judging your gay friends and judging other people who've behaved the way that you have, but also judging you. You would have like gone, Meh, whatever. He doesn't need to know, huh? and you wouldn't have thought you wouldn't have made this phone call. But you made this phone call because right. eventually this is g- going to explode. Like the, the fuse is already lit, and it's under your yeah. skin, and it's bothering you, and you're going to yeah. tell him. And the only is it- the only question is: Are you going to tell him in a moment of sort of drunken truth? telling anger or are you going to tell him in a controlled and calm way that he's full of it and that somebody who's behaved the way that he has 15 partners, meeting people online, waiting, you know, like Jesus told us to a week before fucking them, that he's in no (laughs) position to judge other people's sexual choices, really, that he's as liberated and promiscuous as anyone else. And serial monogamy, when you've had 15 partners by age 30, that's two partners a year. Right. No, that's a partner a year by age thirty. Come the fuck off it. That yeah. he's some sort of like paragon of sexual virtue and conservatism and rectitude—bull fucking shit. He's a slut too. Yeah, he's a slut too. Is making himself feel better <laughs> about his slutty ways by looking down on people who are just a little sluttier than he is. And right, it's bullshit. And he needs to be called on it.
1: Well, yeah. And and I wonder if it it was even as simple as, you know, he would be threatened by the fact that I slept with more people than he did.
0: And maybe. And that's a sexist and unfair double standard. It's why I actually give women a pass when it comes to rounding down those numbers. because, (laughs) Because it's just really unfair. And a lot of guys can't get past it. Even guys who are otherwise cool and calm and sexually liberated and not assholes, when they find out their girlfriend or wife's real number, they get a little upset, inconsolably so. And so I think women, you know, operating in a world where that insanely sexist double standard exists and is going to take generations to root that fucker out, have a right to get a pass, have a right to to minimize and get a pass for that white lie. Like the blowjobs don't count. That drops numbers really fast.
1: Well, I actually brought up something you mentioned on another show about how if women weren't socialized to be so like afraid of being perceived as promiscuous, he would get laid a lot more often. Mm Mm-hmm. And he sort of – it did make him think, but I I don't – I don't think we were talking about the same thing. So it sounds like I just need to – You have come into his life
0: to blow his mind. If you tell him the truth about you, not an exact number. If you tell him the truth about you and he cannot see you anymore, he was not the right Mm -hmm. guy for you. You need to get rid of him. You need to find somebody who's not such a basket case about sexuality. But he either will get past it or losing you will help him rethink his bullshit and his prejudices. And he'll be a better boyfriend to his next girlfriend or he'll be a better boyfriend to you. Either way – Telling them is the right thing to do.
1: Yeah. Okay. It's always the right thing to do, right?
0: Yes. But you get to shave numbers (laughs) off your number. Yeah. Okay. Good luck.
1: Thank you. Thanks for calling. It was awesome to talk.
0: Nice to talk to you, too. Enjoy the rest of your subway ride. irony was lost on the idiots. The irony is always lost on the idiots. At the last minute without debate, legislators, Republican legislators in North Carolina, a Republican-dominated state, added a shit ton of abortion restrictions to a bill that was already sailing through the legislature. And that bill that they added all these new abortion restrictions to was a bill banning Sharia law in North Carolina because theocracy is a threat to our way of life unless it's... Our theocratic bullshit we want to shove down everyone's throats. In Ohio last week, the Republican governor signed a bill that requires women seeking abortions to submit to medically unnecessary transvaginal ultrasounds. You have to have an ultrasound wand jammed up your twat against your will, which is technically uh, meets the legal definition of rape. But like whatever, that bill in Ohio also gutted funding for Planned Parenthood rape crisis clinics in Ohio that counsel women rape victims – about abortion will lose all public funding. Meanwhile, that same bill throws money at sham crisis pregnancy centers that are run by religious groups opposed to abortion and notorious for lying to women not just about the health risks of abortion. Abortion is actually safer than pregnancy but also lying to women about birth control. So if you're raped in Ohio and you go to a rape crisis center and they advise you about perhaps getting an abortion or taking plan B – Uh, They will lose their funding. Ohio wants to make sure that if you are raped and impregnated that you will carry that rapist baby to term. You might want to Google the image from the signing ceremony for this bill where you will see the Republican governor of Ohio signing this bill into law that requires raped women in Ohio to bear their rapist babies potentially surrounded by white men. Just him and his pen And his bullshit and his sexism and his misogyny and all of his white male Republican colleagues gathered around the desk. They couldn't scrounge up one lady for that signing ceremony. Not one. Unbelievably, it gets worse. Are you sitting down? I'm just going to read a little paragraph here from Huffington Post. And if a woman is able to obtain an abortion in Ohio and develop some sort of medical issue during the procedure, clinics will no longer be allowed to transfer these patients to public hospitals for additional care. In the midst of a medical crisis, these patients must find a private hospital to help them. Do you know who owns most of the private hospitals in the United States? The Catholic Church. Good luck women experiencing a medical crisis during an abortion in Ohio obtaining emergency care. You're shit out of luck. Complications are very, very rare during abortions, of course. But Ohio's governor wants to make sure that any slut – excuse me, any woman or rape victim who does experience a complication during an abortion, he wants to make sure that that woman dies, I guess, for the sin of having been raped and then seeking an abortion or just seeking to exercise her constitutional right to terminate pregnancy. Wisconsin last week, Governor Scott Walker, Republican, signs into law a bill that will close two of the state's four abortion clinics. And like Ohio, women in Wisconsin who want an abortion will have to submit to a medically unnecessary transvaginal ultrasound. Texas, we all saw, we all cheered. Wendy Davis, her 11-hour filibuster, a new hero standing up to Rick Perry. Let's just pause here for a moment to discuss Rick Perry. Remember the Republican debates? Remember the Republican presidential uh, nomination campaign in 2012 when Rick Perry was running for president against such intellectual heavyweights as Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum and he couldn't hold up his end of debate. He basically exposed himself to be a fucking blithering idiot on the national stage and the entire country, including the Republicans in this country, everybody concluded this man was far too stupid to be president. We all came to that conclusion, consensus, unanimous consensus, the entire country. Rick Perry, too dumb to be president, but not too dumb to return to Texas and resume being governor, just dumb enough to be governor of fucking Texas. He is attacking Wendy Davis. He is also pushing through one of these bills that we've seen in Wisconsin and Ohio and Virginia most notoriously that are called targeted restrictions of abortion providers or trap laws. Because some of the regulations that they're pushing on to abortion clinics require them to widen hallways, doors and even entrance awnings. The law in Texas would ban abortions after 20 weeks and regulations would force clinics to, yes, widen hallways and doorways and entrance awnings. They're now obsessed with entrance awnings but also require that a clinic be no more than 30 miles from a hospital, which in Texas will effectively shut down 22 of the 27 abortion clinics. Here's just a couple quick paragraphs from In These Times. So-called trap laws impose medically unnecessary but financially and logistically onerous restrictions on abortion clinics in the hopes of driving them out of business. Common trap tactics include requiring abortion clinics to upgrade their facilities to the level of ambulatory surgical centers, which is unnecessary. These laws force clinics to waste medical resources. Money that could have gone to free care for poor women is now being wasted, widening hallways and installing special ventilation systems. Here's a fun game. If you have any Republican friends or relatives, if you're in a room full of Republicans, just mention the Republican war on women and watch their heads explode. They deny that there's any such thing. It's not a war on women. Not all women in Ohio. It's just a war on rape victims. What this all amounts to is fewer clinics being able to provide care to women and not just abortion care but reproductive care. The new law in Ohio, for example, cuts all state funding for Planned Parenthood. Which a lot of women rely on not just for abortion services but pap smears, breast cancer screenings, access to birth control. Remember birth control? That's a thing that women can use that really does bring down abortion rates. The Republican men behind this legislation in all these different states say that they're really just concerned about women's safety. That's why they want to make it harder for women who are experiencing a medical crisis during an abortion to get admitted into a hospital because they're so very concerned for their safety. But they say this is all about women's safety. You really need, as a woman seeking an abortion, it really impacts your safety how wide that fucking awning is outside the building. That's really crucial to your care. It's all about safety though. That's what Rick Perry says. Rick, hair, Perry, it's all about safety. Washington Post asks, fewer clinics means less access to licensed, well-equipped providers. Where is the safety in that? There is no safety in that and that is the fucking point. Look at the Ohio law. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to kill women. Can we just say it? They really want women to, who are seeking abortions to die. It is a win-win for them in the same way. That every time an LGBT kid kills himself, it is a win-win for the religious right. One less queer and they can point to that suicide and say, look how dangerous the gay lifestyle is. Look at the suicide rate. They do this. They point to the suicide rate. They turn around and do then everything they can to drive the LGBT youth suicide rate up. They're doing everything they can to make abortion more dangerous and less accessible to drive women in certain states – certain parts of the country to unsafe, medically unlicensed. This is going to bring back the abortion mill. This is going to bring back unregulated, unsafe abortions. People will be getting abortions in Texas and dying from them. People in Ohio, women in Ohio, unlucky enough to have perhaps been raped, unlucky enough to wind up at a crisis center where they're either being lied to by religious nutbags or they're denied information – under state regulation, from someone who knows damn well what they probably need to do but cannot legally tell them, hello, First Amendment, where would you go? That woman is likelier to die and that's what they want. That is absolutely I, – I, I hate to sound psychotic or conspiracy theory-minded but they want to be able to point to women being harmed by abortion to then argue for banning all abortions nationwide when it's actually their – Bans and restrictions that are going to lead to those harmful results. It's a win-win. Just like that dead gay kid is a win-win for Tony Perkins and the Family Research Council. They do everything they can to make sure the world is unsafe and unwelcoming to gay kids. Those gay kids kill themselves and they say, look how dangerous the gay lifestyle is. There was a terrific editorial in yesterday's New York Times, Monday's New York Times. You should look it up. July 7, 2013, My Mother's Abortion by Beth Mastasoff-Murfish. Look it up. She talks about her mother's abortion if the headline wasn't clear enough. But there was something at the end of it that really kind of annoyed me. Terrific opinion piece. Everyone should read it. Uh, she talks about her mother's abortion, the, the, the shame, the silence. She didn't find out about it until she was 18. When her mother told her when she went to college, her older sister already knew about it. Her mother told her older sister when she went to college and her mother told them about her abortion when she was their age in college so that they would know that if they had this kind of crisis – that she would be there for them and stand with them. And Murfish's piece concludes basically with this, what the movement for reproductive rights needs is the faces of freedom to emerge from the captivity of shame. To my mother's generation, I ask, speak openly about the choices you have made. To all women, she writes, ask your mothers, grandmothers, godmothers, aunts, sisters, daughters and partners about their reproductive histories. Show that abortion has myriad faces. Those of women we love, respect and cherish. Can't argue with that. Well, I can. There's just one thing in here I want to argue with. To all women, ask your mothers, grandmothers, godmothers. To all people, men, too, need to ask their mothers, grandmothers, godmothers, aunts, sisters, daughters and partners about their reproductive choices. Every once in a while I get a letter at Savage Love uh, at the advice column and I've run them every once in a while from a woman who is thinking about getting an abortion, maybe had a one night stand Had sex, you know, friends with benefit, very casual thing and unfortunately the birth control that they were using failed and she's pregnant and she doesn't know whether to tell the dude that she's going to get the abortion. My advice is always tell the dude. There are so many men rattling around in this country, rattling around in state legislators, rattling around in governor's mansions who have benefited from reproductive freedom who have dodged fucking bullets themselves, the unplanned pregnancy, the broken condom, the unwanted child that could have derailed their lives and they don't know about it because their girlfriend, their wife, their mother had the abortion and didn't tell them. We need to talk about it. One in three American women have had an abortion. We need to talk about it. And not just women among women talking about it, Women need to tell their fucking boyfriends, husbands, fathers, sons about their abortions too. Or we're going to keep seeing shit like this from the Walkers and Kasichs and Perrys squatting in governor's mansions and shithole states in this country right now. I love Wisconsin. Wisconsin, you're not a shithole. You need to get rid of that governor. Texas, well, we'll talk later. And men need to be told about these abortions. Men need to know when they have personally benefited – from abortion, and they need to know when their families have benefited from abortion. And abortion doesn't just benefit straight guys. I'm a faggot. Here I am, ranting and raving about access to abortion rights. Hello, my fellow faggots. It impacts you too. You have a mother, you have sisters, you have aunts, you have female cousins, you have female colleagues, friends. They need to control their own reproductive systems just like you do. What is the fight against gay rights but some people telling other people what they can and cannot do with their junk? There is a link between reproductive freedom for women and freedom for sexual minorities who are at no risk of ever getting pregnant. If you can't see the common enemy, Rick Perry also hates you, faggots. Rick Perry hates Reproductive freedom for women, the Ohio Republicans who pushed through this bill, the North Carolina Republicans who pushed through this bill, they hate you too and for the same reason. Because you have the nerve to think that you're in charge of your own body, faggots, my fellow faggots. And we need to link arms with our heterosexual bisexual lady friends, neighbors and relatives and fight back against these motherfuckers and defend the reproductive freedom of all Including our freedom to use our reproductive systems in non-reproductive manners whenever we fucking wanna. This is getting worse. I think people are a little complacent after the 2012 election, after we got Obama in. Things would be much worse if we had Romney. But don't think that just because Obama got reelected that reproductive rights are safe. States are moving on this. States are clamping down. States are imperiling women, are making abortion dangerous. I hate to rant and rave for this long without telling people to do something, something that you can do. You can fucking vote. I followed a link on Twitter and now I can't find the piece. So I apologize to the writer who's thought I'm about to rip off here. But the piece basically argued that Americans are pro-choice. All the polls show that Americans are pro-choice. These 20-week abortion restrictions, these awning restrictions, transvaginal ultrasound mandates, Americans are not into this shit. This writer said, you know what, America? If you are pro-choice, you need to start voting like you're pro-choice. Right-wingers and anti-choice maniacs who are the minority have been able to leverage their willingness to vote single issue on choice into victories in state houses. We need to do the same goddamn thing. You need to vote. If you're not voting and you're not voting pro-choice, you are part of the problem. The other thing that you can do right now, right now it is so crucial to show your support for Planned Parenthood. You may not have much to give. That doesn't matter. One of the ways that Planned Parenthood can demonstrate its necessity and the support out there for it is just by pointing to their sheer number of donors. doesn't matter if you're only giving five or ten bucks. You're then standing with Planned Parenthood and they can point to you and everybody else who's donated as proof of their mainstream cred. To refute these efforts by Republican legislators and Republican governors to make Planned Parenthood look like some sort of enemy, some sort of outlier on this. Planned Parenthood is mainstream. Rick Perry, besides being fucking stupid, is outside the mainstream on reproductive choice. Please go to PlannedParenthood.org, hit donate and give just a little. I'm going to do it today. You do it today. And then vote.
1: Hi, Dan, this is, well, I'm from Minnesota, and I just heard that DOMA got overturned, and I'm just wondering what that means as far as immigration reform, because, like I said, I live in Minnesota, and I have a girlfriend who doesn't have a green card, and all of a sudden, like, I'm actually thinking I might be able to sponsor her. So I was just wondering if you could, I don't know, help us out and figure out what's going on.
0: I talked about the Defense of Marriage Act and the Supreme Court decision at the top of the show and there's a lot to talk about. I could run my mouth some more Uh, but I'd rather bring somebody else in, somebody instrumental in DOMA's defeat and the spread of marriage equality to so many states and and the, 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 the sea change that we've seen. Uh, not just in the law but in the hearts and minds of the American people. Evan Wilson is the founder and executive director of Freedom to Marry, the campaign to win marriage nationwide. He's also the author of Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, and Gay People's Right to Marry. He was listed as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, a designation that Time automatically removes from someone uh, if they appear in my podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Evan. <clears throat> Uh, I guess I just peeked. <laughs> <laughs> you did. It's, it's, a, it's a slide from here. Um, congratulations.
4: Thank you. Yes, to all of us. It's really momentous.
0: You are called the godfather uh, of the marriage equality movement, and rightfully so. And you began fighting for marriage equality back when you were laughed at, when nobody uh, thought that this was something that could ever happen.
4: Well, in a way that's true, and uh, certainly people say that now, but as you know, gay people have challenged our exclusion from marriage really since the dawn of the modern gay rights movement, which we usually erroneously date to 1969 in Stonewall. Within two years of Stonewall, couples were challenging the denial in three states in three major court cases, one in Washington state where you are. And the difference then is that they were all rubber-stamped out of court. They were just thrown out because the country wasn't ready for it. When the second wave of marriage litigation began, most importantly with the Hawaii case in which I was co-counsel, the, the, the results were very different. It launched this ongoing global movement. It brought us all the progress that we've seen. And the difference between the first wave and the second wave was that AIDS came in between and shattered the silence about gay people's lives and prompted non-gay people to see gay people as part of families, as grieving, as, as connected to others, as human. And it really awakened gay people to the need to not just fight to be let, let alone, but to be let in. To be part of the safety net of protection and inclusion under the law and in society, and here we are.
0: It's uh, like I told you. You and I had dinner last week in Seattle. Like I told you, I just I cried when the, the Supreme Court decision came in. I, you know, always thought we would get here. I didn't think we would get here in my lifetime. Did huh? you think we would get here in your lifetime? Um, Well,
4: yes, I did, and and that was part of why, obviously, I wrote my paper 30 years ago. It's why I've been working on this ever since. The difference is that when you're younger – you think what is a long time will be shorter. So it definitely has It's taken longer than I expected to get as far as we have, but I always knew it was not going to happen overnight and that we would get there. And what's wonderful is that because we've all been working really hard, telling our stories, talking with non-gay people, and because non-gay people have had the, the innate fairness and willingness to think anew, in Lincoln's words. We really have been able to change things. And you know something, that that actually is the story of America, that it takes struggle and work, and it's never done, and it's imperfect. But this is a society where we have the tools to change things if we do the work.
0: Okay. Uh, there's that famous Gandhi quote uh, about social justice struggles. First, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. You mm-hmm. have You have lived that whole trajectory. They ignored... Yeah. They laughed. They fought. You won in the Supreme Court last week. How did that yeah. feel, that yeah, win? I just
4: wanna, uh, well, thank you. I just want to say, though, we, we're winning. Uh, we haven't yet won, as you know. We still have more work to do. And I think the single most important thing I could say on, uh, this convers- in this conversation, in other words, is that we all have to keep going. We really have to keep doing the work. But these Supreme Court rulings gave us a huge amount to work with on top of the momentum we already have, and now we just have to keep going and finish the job. I I was elated when I saw those rulings. You know, the Supreme Court did two big things last week. First, the court turned the federal government from the number one discriminator against gay couples to now putting its moral and legal weight on the side of our families and on the side of the freedom to marry throughout the country. States may continue to discriminate for a time, and that's why we have more work to do. But the federal government will now be treating married couples as what they are, married in all 50 states. And that's a huge, huge accomplishment that really does give so much more to work with, as well as giving tangible protections and responsibilities and safety net to people all across the country, even in states that still discriminate.
0: Okay, so... Go ahead, ahead, finish.
4: and And then the second thing the court did was to restore the freedom to marry in California. And what that means is a third of Americans now live in a state where gay people can share in the freedom to marry. That's over 100 million people, and it's up from zero a decade ago. We still that means, that still means we have more than 200 million who don't yet have the freedom to marry and 37 states where we don't yet have the freedom to marry. But we've come a long way in a very short time, and we have to now take that and
0: finish the job. So speaking of those specific rights and benefits that people have won, what what was achieved for people, same-sex couples in the Supreme Court, the first caller, the, the question we just listened to, she heard that the DOMA decision is going to have some impact on immigration, that her girlfriend doesn't have a green card, uh, isn't a citizen. Um, And that was really I think the first tangible benefit that we saw. One of the first sort of real-world benefits that came through was same-sex couple married, although living in Florida that does not recognize same-sex marriage. The one man, the US citizen, was able to get a green card for his married male partner. This is monumental.
4: Yeah, this is change you can believe in, and I want to give a real shout out to President Obama, to Attorney General Holder, and to the administration, the agencies, and others who have, without hesitation, moved forward now to do everything the executive branch can do to implement the command of the constitution as laid out by the court they, they could have been foot dragging they could have been studying this to death but instead they moved into action to do what the administration should be doing following the law and you know we still have more work to do they they have to make sure that the, this this constitutional command of treating marriages equally is implemented across all federal programs that the executive branch can do and there is there's going to be some area where we're also going to maybe need Congress to take action. And that's why we've called on Congress to pass the Respect for Marriage Act that would repeal DOMA in its entirety, get that whole discriminatory language off the books, and make sure that this standard of treating marriages with respect for federal programs is implemented across the country.
0: But we, it is true, and the, the Obama administration deserved tremendous credit. They moved with really astounding speed. To enact what they could enact, to to just bring forth the benefits that we had so long been denied uh, as rapidly as possible. That people were getting their getting green cards for their legally wed spouses within days of this decision. If this had been President Romney's administration, they would have taken five years to study how this might be implemented, and in that time, more and more people would have been deported, and more binational couples would have been split up. And what we saw from the Obama administration was really in 48 hours or less. Right.
4: Yes, and and of course, immigration, hugely important as it is, and and making a real dramatic difference in people's lives, as you described, is only one of the more than 1,138 federal protections and responsibilities triggered by marriage, and the administration is now working its way through all of them to make sure that everything the administration can do will now be implemented. And of course, we have to keep encouraging and make sure they do that, but again, I have been really... So proud of how the administration has moved forward to do what the president promised to do smoothly and swiftly implement the court's decision. So we now need Congress to finish the job with the Respect for Marriage Act, and meanwhile, of course, we have to tear down this discrimination in the 37 other states.
0: Absolutely, yeah, it ain't over. It ain't over. Uh, Same sex couples in 13 states in the District of Columbia can marry legally entitled to all the benefits and responsibilities of marriage that the state confers and the federal government, but 37 states and 200 million Americans live in those states. Uh, right. where they don't have access uh, to these rights. Any advice for this caller in particular about her girlfriend?
4: Well, they are now eligible to be treated like any other married couple. So if they are married... No matter where they're living, they are entitled to begin the process. You know, obviously have an attorney work with the immigration agencies and apply for the green card that any other spouse would be qualified for.
0: Such a tremendous benefit, but don't rush into marriage just for a green card. Continue to date, have a life long engagement, then marry if she's the right person.
4: That's well. That's exactly right. Marriage is marriage is something important and it's personal.
0: Absolutely, and we've certainly seen straight couples get married for all the wrong reasons. But we want to. Uh, be better than that ourselves. Can you hang out for a couple more calls, Evan? Absolutely.
5: Hello, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old gay man that has only just recently come out because of a personal conflict that I have with being gay, a problem for which I'm getting help. It was liberating when the Supreme Court made their rulings on DOMA and Prop 8, but immediately after, many people and groups, I'm sure you know who they are, spoke publicly to denounce the court's decision My question to you is how do you suggest LGBT folks and straight allies handle the constant rejection and bigotry of some people? How do you keep from taking it personal?
0: You have to deal with this a lot. You were just on Meet the Press with Brian Brown, who is the chief anti-gay bigot in the United States now, sort of our Jesse Helms, the modern Jesse Helms, and you have to listen to this stuff. This bile, this this, this vicious bigotry come out of his mouth, and you're sitting right there. How do you handle it?
4: Yeah, well, first of all, you described very, very well how you and Terry handled it in your own home, Dan, (laughs) in in your book, which I really enjoyed reading on the plane, uh, American Savage, but um, what, what I would say is that those are not the people we really need to be talking to. I mean, I don't really care what Brian Brown thinks or Tony Brown thinks and so on. What I care about is moving the American people and the decision makers whom we can move, the reachable, but perhaps not yet reached people, not the hardcore opposition. So don't listen and don't waste your time on the the hardcore opponents. Focus on the persuading we all need to be doing with the people we can move. And every one of us has friends, has neighbors, has coworkers, has family members, people who care about us and whom we can persuade. They need to hear from us. That's where we need to be putting our energy. We owe it to them to help them rise to fairness, because that's those millions of conversations are what create the climate that enable decision makers, lawmakers, governors, presidents, judges, and justices to do the right thing. So focus on the good. Don't focus on the bad. Focus on what you can do, what you can change. And look, the history is we have changed. When DOMA passed back in 1996, when I was in Hawaii doing the world's first ever trial that won the Freedom to Marry, public opinion was 27% supporting the Freedom to Marry. We've now grown that to more than double, 54 to 55 to 58%. We can persuade people. Don't focus on the ones that can't be moved. Focus on the ones that
0: can. Okay, it doesn't sound like that's his question, though. It sounds like his question is, you know, he hears these horrible, hateful, bigoted things, and it eats at him. It impacts him. It makes him feel bad. You hear those things. I hear those things. How do we get through it? How do we? How do we react? What's what? How do you get through the day after you have to sit there at Meet the Press with Brian Brown, listening to his bullshit? Do you just shrug it off and? Go have a drink? What do you do? What's your strategy? What would you advise this guy to do when he hears these hateful things that clearly eat at him?
4: Yeah, I, w- I would say don't listen to the hateful. Don't listen to the, the, the bad. Don't listen to those voices outside or inside who are telling you you're not worthy, you're not good, you're not entitled. Focus on the millions and millions of people who have moved in the right direction. Focus on the change we have made. Focus on the ways in which, I don't have to tell you, we can make it get better. And, and, and Know that you are as worthy and as good as anyone else. You're not. In, you don't have to listen to the worst. Focus on the best. And rise, and you know. Obviously, it's it's easier if you've built a life for yourself, or, or work to find a life where you have friends, where you have family members who are supportive, where you have love in your life, and where you feel like you're accomplishing something. And I think everybody needs to build a life that does allow for that, and shuck off the things that that are
0: in the way. And that can take some time after coming out. One of the things I always remind people when they're coming out, however old they are, whatever their age, is that coming out initially creates a lot of chaos and, and tumult in your life. It can really rupture relationships with family, with church, with friends. And it initially at that – just at the beginning, like when I was 16 years old, coming out seemed to be the worst thing that happened to me because it just upsets so many apple carts. But then five years later – it had also brought into my life at that point so much good, new experiences, love, people that I met that I wouldn't have met if I weren't gay and out. And looking back then, I could see that it was worth it. But when I first came out, it was kind of awful and I had to listen to bigots because they were the only people I knew at that point. And then with time, I'm just saying this to the caller, with time, you're – the good that's coming to you for being who you are, for being open, for being out – will accrue. But at least at the outset, it can feel like, you know, I came out and I'm out now and it didn't really pay off because my parents are freaked out. My friends are freaked out. Uh, Give it time. You'll meet the better people. You'll meet the people that you needed in your life all along that you weren't able to meet because you weren't out yet.
4: Right. Well, I agree with all that. And it certainly isn't easy. It isn't easy for any person really to do the journey of life. I mean, everybody has something in their life that burdens them or weighs them down or makes them worried or upset or that they're hearing bad stuff from. I mean, gay people are not unique in having something we have to deal with. The the wonderful thing is that although we still have so much more to do and everybody has their own personal journey on it, there are so many more people now out who are ready to to do the right thing, to be right, to treat gay people right. So many more loving people, so many more opportunities that don't be trapped where there isn't. Go and find where there is.
0: And it can help also to remind yourself how ridiculous these people are that gay people uh, you know I'm a gay person you're a gay person i don't wake up every day obsessing about heterosexual sex and how icky it is and and how sinful and terrible the the heteros are because they aren't and I love them, and heterosexual sex is awesome that's where gay people come from ultimately and they're ridiculous this is that there are people like Peter La Babera and Brian Brown, these ostensibly straight adult men who spend. All their waking moments obsessing about gay people's lives and what gay people are doing in the privacy of their own bedrooms and who gay people love and whether the the, the Supreme Court is okay with it or not. They are absurd and laughable. So caller at those moments when they get in your grill, laugh in their faces, laugh them off. They are ridiculous. You are not sick or sinful or perverse or terrible. They're fucking ridiculous.
4: And they're also a minority, a dwindling and increasingly isolated minority. And and if they're not a minority where you find yourself, then bring yourself to another place, whether geographically or spiritually. Go to the people, go to the places, go to the opportunities that are open in front of us because we've earned them. And we are now with the majority. The majority of Americans support the freedom to marry. The majority of Americans do not believe that gay is immoral. That's a change. We had to work hard to achieve those changes, but we have, and it's only going to get better if we do the work.
1: Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old lesbian in the Midwest. I'm because I am getting married, well, commitment ceremony in my state, and the issue is with my partner's family on uh, a bunch of breathing lunatic bigots um, and haven't been very kind to her and she came out and been really horrible to me. We don't talk to them much, but she was wanting to invite them to our ceremony, and I really don't want them there. I don't even want them knowing when, where, because I really wouldn't cut it past these people to make a scene. <clears throat> and I don't know what to do without hurting her feelings and even coming off to her family as even. A bigger church than what they already think that I am. So she kind of offered up, well, let's just invite the ones that have been terrible to us, um, but not the ones that have, like her parents and brothers and sisters and such. Well, that I do know about her family is they are really busy bodies. So I know that um, the moment they had anybody in the family, uh, had the address to the ceremony, they would be there. And it would be spread throughout their family with they of just looking
0: to get your advice. All right, Evan Wolfson, time to put on your – you won marriage in 13 <laughs> states and, and federal recognition for those marriages. Now it's time to put on your wedding planner hat as oh, opposed yeah. to your wedding marriage activist hat. So should this woman allow her girlfriend or fiance to invite her bigoted future in-laws to their wedding that they may yeah. possibly disrupt?
4: So I had a few reactions. Number one, your wedding is your wedding. There is no right answer. And even though everybody, including now us, is going to be free to give you, feel free to give you advice because everybody's very connected to the vocabulary of wedding, which is part of why it's been so transformative for us to claim it. Uh, It's your wedding. It's your day. It's your celebration. You guys need to work it out. You know, secondly, uh, obviously, the two of you have to work it out between the two of you. You each have things that matter to you. And that's part of not just the wedding, but marriage. Welcome. The third thing I'll say, though, is my own answer would be to invite them. My own answer is to give people a chance to rise. I would take the risk of it not being everything I want and them not behaving as well as I would want and not be the one to shut the door or keep them out. I think the fact of inviting them and then the fact of them coming will be transformative for them, we hope, and we need to keep those doors open, let them cross the threshold.
0: I actually agree with Evan. Wow. Why not invite them? I, 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 yeah, go for it. Uh, unless you, – you know, the caller does sound a little traumatized. She's worried that they may be violent or disruptive in some way, that they may show up to take some stand against their daughter. And, and so that needs to be weighed and she needs to talk to her uh-huh. fiancé about whether that's a realistic fear or not. But don't discount the, the, the pressure of uh, of emerging social norms and your wedding will be – a room in which the social norm is to love and support you as a couple and if you drop even a few – a handful of bigoted relatives into that room of of love and support, they will feel that they are in the wrong. They may – it may help open their eyes. It may help bring them around. But your wedding isn't supposed to be about curing your future in-laws' bigotries. It's supposed to be about your love. But I think you should err on the side of inviting the motherfuckers and it might help you. The caller might help her. To see it as kind of an aggressive act, to see it as a, fuck you, you're invited to the wedding, as opposed to, uh, I guess I can't avoid inviting you to the wedding.
4: I I might write the invitation differently, but (laughs) 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 extend the hand.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I remember that when you extend a hand, it does have a middle finger in there still that you can employ at any moment and talk to some friends. You have friends at the wedding and say, you know keep an eye on them. And if there's any ugliness, it's your job. Your gift to us at our wedding is to bum rush these motherfuckers out of the room
4: yeah i mean when when my husband and I got married we we didn 't have anything like that kind of tension or concern, but I do know that having his his family there some from china some from um uh, British Columbia came in. Uh, it was it was an experience for them to be in a room with that many gay people, with that many more non-gay people loving and applauding gay people to get to see a wedding that they could recognize and understand. I think it really did touch their hearts. Not that they were bad to begin with, not that they were in anywhere near where the Callers family seems to be, but uh, it, it helped them. It helped them feel even better and happier and rejoice and be part of it. So I, you know, I think it's wonderful that we are giving people a chance to celebrate with us.
0: Evan Wolfson, founder and executive director of Freedom to Marry, the campaign to win marriage equality nationwide, author of Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, and Gay People's Right to Marry. Follow him on Twitter, at Evan Wolfson. Thank you so much, Evan, just personally, uh, on behalf of myself and my husband and and our child and our family and all the other same-sex couples uh, in the country, where we are now, uh, couldn't have seen it coming and we wouldn't be here without your hard work and passion and dedication and intellect. And, and the years you've sunk into this. So just personally, on behalf of my family and my husband, thank you so much. Well,
4: thank you, Dan, and thanks for your part in it. And we all have to keep it going because we're not yet done.
0: Yeah, the fight is number 37 more states to go. People, Some people online said, okay, we're done with marriage equality. Let's move on to X, Y, and Z. We can move on multiple fronts. We should keep fighting for trans rights. We should keep fighting for employment, non-discrimination, but we have to keep fighting for marriage too. And there's nothing about our movement uh, that prevents us from moving on multiple friends at once, as that's we have been doing. That's
4: exactly right. In fact, we, we of course, want it all. We're not done until we have it all, which means we're never fully done. We want it for everyone. And what we've seen is that marriage is an extraordinary engine. that helps move things forward, and we need to keep going.
1: Hi, Dan. I'm in my 30s and have been dating my boyfriend for about nine months now. We're monogamish in that we like three ways, but we're exclusive to each other in every other way. We both agree that marriage wouldn't be in the picture for about another year, but we've been starting to discuss it. What a marriage would look like, where we would live, step parenting issues, et cetera. I feel like these are things that need to be discussed to find out if we could even be compatible in a long-term relationship. And recently on a, on a podcast, you were talking to someone who said she was on the path to marriage after five months of dating. And you blasted her for feeling like she was on the path to marriage. You said five months was still the audition stage. So I'm curious for your take on how long it should take to move to the path to marriage. How long does the audition period last? And in particular, at what point, you know, just get your opinion, when should we introduce the kid to the boyfriend? Um, You know, how long should someone be dating before they move in together? I know you've kind of varied on different situations on that. You know, how long do you think a couple should date before they get married? I'm just curious to hear what you think.
0: You want numbers and I can't give you numbers. I can't say two years or three years or 26 months is precisely the right time. Individual experience varies so widely on these things that you will meet people who married at three months who are still together and very, very happy. That's a data point. The research shows that the, sooner people marry, the quicker people marry, the younger people marry, the less likely those marriages are to stand the test of time. Now, I don't think longevity is the only measure of a successful relationship, as I've said a million times. But most people, when they talk about marriage and they talk about when and whether to marry, they are hopefully you know, – they're putting their chip. They're, they're pushing their chips out of the table and betting on that lifetime. So if you want to bet on that lifetime, I think you should wait a little longer than nine months. I think if – your boyfriend of nine months has not yet met your kid. It is certainly too early to be thinking about scheduling a wedding. It is not too early of course to be thinking to, – to be looking at this guy and thinking I could see myself with him. This is somebody I think based on what I know about him now, You know, things keep coming out the way they're coming out. If this relationship keeps, keeps unfolding the way it's unfolding, if he is the person he's led me to believe that he is – I could see myself with him. But at nine months, you don't know really that for sure. So you need to do your due diligence and you need to wait a bit longer. If he's somebody that you could marry and spend the rest of your life with at nine months, he will be someone you could marry and spend the rest of your life with at two years or three years. So wait. But feel your feelings. Feel the fuck out of your fucking feelings. If you feel now like, God, I could marry you. You could say that to him. He could say that to you. Oh, my God. I could see myself. Yeah, we should – I really think you might be it and I I so want this to work out that we're not going to rush it. We're going to wait. We're going to keep dating and, and hanging out and and feeling this intense connection grow and then we will marry when we know that this is absolutely positively right, that this is what we should do. So, we're not betting on whether or not it's right in trying to hurry the deal with a marriage. We're sealing the deal with a marriage. So, wait, I'm not going to give you months. Nine months, I think I can give you, that's too soon. Nine months and has not yet met your child, way too soon. You need to roll him out, introduce him to your child, introduce him to your friends and family, get to know him better. And then, two, three years from now, you still feel the same way that you feel right now, then obviously that's an indication that. You could marry him and you should marry him and it would be an indication that you could have married him at nine months, right? But two, three years from now, you may realize that he isn't who you thought he was at nine months. If he is who you think he is now, he will be that person in two years. If he isn't who you think he is now, he won't be that person in two years. You don't want to be married to that person then when you realize he's not who you thought he was. What you want to do is marry the person that you now know is absolutely positively who you thought him to be at nine months. So that's why you marry then, not now.
1: Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 21-year-old queer woman from the West Coast. Um, I have kind of a relationship quandary for you. I am in a relationship for almost six months with um, a wonderful woman who is Slightly older than me, she is about ten years my senior, and we have a great relationship. Um, The issue is that we are at a point where we've both realized that we are we want really different things. She
3: has decided that for the first time in her life, she knows what she wants, and that's to have kids and get married and settle down, and um, not
1: necessarily anytime soon. But she needs to work towards that, and I know just as strongly as she knows that she wants kids, that I do not want that, at least in the next decade, Um, and that I am about to graduate from college and, um, you know, I have a lot of things I need to do and decisions I need to make um, that are for me and only for me. And I would love to be with her, um, but I can't marry her and I can't have kids with her right now. Um, But we are really, really in love and... We both this is the best sex we ever had. We're both into the exact same things. We care about each other really deeply. So my question is what do you think we should do? Because we can either break up now and have her use her time meeting other people that she might end up, you know, being able to marry in the future and avoid some future pain, or we stay together until we both graduate. She's in grad school until we both graduate and then You know, sort of see what happens there,
3: like whether one of us has
1: to move for a job or whatnot. Either way, it sounds like we both get hurt, and that's going to be
0: kind of sad. So how do you deal with that, I guess, is my question. It's only been six months, six months, six months. We keep hitting that six-month wall today. It's only been six fucking months. Um, Right now, your life plans and her life plans don't align. Perhaps you're not compatible, but why rush a confrontation about it or having to resolve this issue, just leave it unresolved. Let it be messy. You've only been dating this person for six months. And so just kick that fucking can down the road and say, you know, you're in school, I'm in school, whatever we're going to do, have kids, get married, whatever or not, or put that off for 10 years or five years, whatever we're going to do, we're not going to do that right now. We're certainly not going to get married at seven months. We're not going to have a child together at nine months. So Why fight about this? Let's enjoy each other. Let's enjoy this time. Let's see where this takes us. Let's see how deeply connected we become. Let's see if this bond grows and strengthens and then if it does, we may reach a point where we have to then assess what we're going to do. Who's going to – if we really love each other, if we've got to make this work, somebody's going to have to give way. Either I'll settle down a little quicker than I wanted to or you'll wait a little longer than you wanted to. Maybe – It will be 10 years. Maybe it will be five years. Maybe it will be two and a half years. We'll have to hammer out a compromise if we realize we're so in love that we can't live without each other. But for right now, it's six months to be hurrying into confrontations and conflicts about marriage and children when you should still be getting to know each other and determining whether you really do love this person enough to think about a life with this person. Think about what that life is going to look like after you know for sure that this person is the person you want to spend your life with instead of really sabotaging the relationship at this stage by focusing on what are incompatible life goals and abstract life goals that you don't even really need to think about for a while. And If you fall more deeply in love, you may find yourself willing to compromise on issues that right now you are not willing to compromise on and the same goes for her. So let it be. Date. Don't be lesbians about it. Don't rush it. And there's nothing lesbian about rushing it. We had straight couples on earlier in the show. They were rushing it too. Don't fucking rush it. Love her. Date. Have fun. Think about marriage and kids and family in two years.
5: Hey, grumpy old faggot from 1981. Uh, I guess I'm going to be one of the people calling about your bathhouse rant in episode 349. Good grief, Dan. I mean, I've I've heard reviews on bathhouses for years now, but it just occurred to me that, you know, for someone who's never really been, you sure have a lot to say about them. You know, just like a bar, a bathhouse is, can be a completely mixed bag. Sure, you can run into people who are self-destructive messes. You can have a boring night of cruising guys in the hallway. You can also meet someone for a really surprising night of intimacy and affection Um, I've made friends in bathhouses who I still see on a regular basis 13, 14 years later. You give a caveat during your rant, letting the caller know you've got a limited perspective, but but Jesus, lighten up a little bit.
1: Hi, Dan. I'm calling in reference to episode 349 when you were talking with Garfunkel and Oates about the concept of the fadeaway, Um, and you both... All three of you kind of refer to it as a pussy move or whatever. Um, And while it is, I think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of guys react really aggressively and angrily to being rejected. Um, And if you feel like you are dating that kind of guy, you know, who might start name calling, you know, or could even potentially become violent or you know, hounding you, then sometimes the fadeaway is really the only way to deal with that. Obviously, it's always important to try to be honest whenever possible, but some people make it impossible. And a lot of straight guys who are, quote, nice guys have this idea that if they're nice enough to you, that they're owed sex. And, you know, their niceness suddenly disappears when you tell them the best that's not gonna happen. They think if they do everything right, then you're obligated. So that's the situation and that's that's the situation where it's okay to just fade away and disappear and not feel bad about it. Hi, I'm Colin because I just listened to episode one oh nine from November two thousand eight. And I've been skimming around and listening to old podcasts and I got to this one and i literally started crying in my office because it... We're talking about Prop 8 and how upset everyone was and how upset I was at the time too with these rights that got taken away from the gay community and now five years later, Doma's done and Prop 8 got sent back down to the lower courts and it's, it's not a thing anymore and don't ask, don't tell isn't a thing anymore. And it's kind of amazing to think about the fact that it's been five years seems like such a long time, but things are changing and it, I feel like, There's a lot that obviously still needs to change, and there's a lot of things that still need to be worked on, and there's a lot of rights that still need to be won, but I think it's kind of nice to be able to go back five years and hear how angry and upset everyone was and see how, years later, how that translates and how people really are fighting, and things really are changing, and things really are getting better, so I just wanted to call and say thank you for everything that you do and the, the hope that you give people, and and to tell people to keep on helping because things are are getting better and they're going to keep getting better.
0: And we're gonna leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. As ever, a very big thank you to all you Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. We appreciate you all so very much. 206-201-2720. That's the number. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Buy my new book, American Savage which the Washington Post calls an extraordinarily personal, deeply felt book about traditional marriage, authentic and healthy religion, and her traditional sex life. Hmm. American Savage. Buy the book, read it, figure out what the hell they're talking about at the Washington Post, because I don't get it. 206-201-2720, that's the number. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for that much.